A well-known Bible teacher has said that if the announcement of Jesus' birth had been part of a humanly planned public relations campaign, in other words, if the whole point is that the whole world would know, and so therefore the coming of this child needs to be made known, then if it was left to our way, left to human planning, it would have been done in an entirely different way. See, for us and for most people, it would only make sense. The importance of this child, the significance of this message, the need for all to hear, even the fact that the angels declared he has been given for all people. We want to make sure as many people know as possible, and so we would broadcast this as widely as possible in the most visible means. We would make sure the message would go first to those who were most powerful and most influential. So in that day, it would have been to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the wealthy, the rich, and to the kings. Yet for whatever his reason, God in his wisdom decided that his wisdom is somehow different than our wisdom, which leaves us wondering and to have to decide who is it that's actually wise. Because with all of our wise plans and the way that we would strategize and create a campaign, he did the exact opposite. Rather than going to the most influential, the greatest possible audience, the Lord went out in the quiet of the night to shepherds text and the familiarity of the stories reminds us we see a scene as the shepherds are out minding their own business doing what they did regularly whether it was a particularly quiet night most of our Christmas carols trying to tell us that it is but we don't know it could have been a particularly ordinary night the sheep might have been wandering and scattering a little bit more we don't really know the circumstances exactly or what frankly most of us even understand of what goes on in the night-to-night day-to-day life of a shepherd But we do know is that on this particular night, on this first Christmas night, the shepherds were going about their business. They were tending their flocks. They were doing so together. In the still of the night, the first ever historic, the first ever in history Christmas flash mob emerged. Now some of you are certainly aware of what a flash mob is. It's a sociological phenomenon where people minding their own business, all of a sudden a crowd erupts in their song. This time last year, one of those flash mobs had gone viral. People were seeing the video of a looking like a typical day at a shopping mall here during the Christmas season. People going about their business, shopping, getting ready to have their children's picture taken with Santa. And then in the atrium of the food court, a woman with an almost operatic voice begins to start singing loudly joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Now, if you were shopping and somebody starts singing and it doesn't seem to be on stage, it would have caught your attention. So many of the people kind of stopped and looked. Others looked and continued their shopping or going where they were going. And then as she begins the second verse, other people who were scattered around the food court stand up and start harmonizing with her. And they continue. And people then certainly attention gathered we're watching, you see the amusement and, and the uh, even excitement on the faces of some. And when they finally round out the song of joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Four guys that are on the escalator going right above where this lady was standing start belting out, O come all ye faithful. And people now are standing amazed. And as they continued their singing and people have full attention, Then from the floors above in the balconies come choirs joining in and singing along. It's it's really, if you watch the video, it's quite an amazing and a a powerful, even it's a a moving situation. 
because most people are going about their business and all of a sudden everybody is gathered. And not only is everybody's attention given to those people who are singing and celebrating, but many of the people who were there shopping, they began joining in and singing together as well. And so all of these individuals going about their Christmas business are now gathered together in an unlikely place, singing praises through familiar songs to our Savior. I can only imagine what it would be like to have actually been in the ball. But even had I been there, I, I have to imagine that it would have been as nothing as compared to what these shepherds experienced. And first, an angel in his own awesomeness came enough that they were concerned. I mean, that's what the text tells us. They, they showed up. They were afraid. The angel's first message to them, don't be afraid, which could literally be translated, don't freak out. Because I bring you good news of great joy. And if that wasn't awesome enough to be in the presence of this majestic angel, then in the midst of his talking, from out of nowhere appears hosts, which uncountable voices singing praises to God in celebration of the gift, the announcement of the Christ child who had been long promised. It's really almost unimaginable. I know this is a very familiar story. The words themselves are very familiar as well. This morning I want to look at it really from four different perspectives or kind of outline it in a way as we follow and just see what God is speaking to us. For those of you who like outlines, we'll call it the four S's. We'll look first at the, at the shepherds and then the Savior then the singers, and then ultimately the song. And see, not only what God tells us that may be a reminder, but here, God's speaking to us and calling him back to himself so that we may be enriched with the full message of the Christmas season, that we may be graced with the full gift that God has given to us at that time and is continuing to give to us even today. So we begin considering the shepherds. It's no secret for anybody who's ever attended a Christmas service in almost any churches that shepherds in those days were the lowest rung on the social ladder. It hadn't always been that way. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a number of shepherds and they're not spoken of as being despised or anything necessarily bad. It was just a job. It was an occupation. Somebody needed to do it. Doing it neither indicated that you were a, a bad person or somebody that is to be admired. In fact, some of those that we read of as shepherds in the Old Testament are actually lauded. David being one. There's nothing to indicate that David being a shepherd meant that he was despised, that just somebody had to keep the sheep. He was the youngest brother. The other ones had figured out a way to pawn off an unpleasant task to the youngest, not unlike most of our families. And so David was the shepherd while the others took care of other areas of business. 
By the time that Jesus was born, shepherds had gained an entirely new reputation. Their role was diminished. It was not an occupation that anybody who had any prospects for a enjoyable life would necessarily want to do. But since everybody has to do something, there is always this need. There were people who had joined up and become shepherds. So by that time, people despised shepherds, thinking they are not people worthy to be considered. They weren't necessarily hated, but they were not trusted either. At that time, if you were to throw a party, you would not invite a shepherd unless you knew that everything was already nailed to the floor and all your silverware was counted and marked so that you could retrace it from the pawn shop. They had gained a reputation as being tremendous thieves and robbers. They weren't really trusted if you needed something in conversation with them. In fact, because they had gained a reputation as being an untrustworthy people and liars, shepherds were not even allowed to bear testimony in a court case in civil culture. Because you never knew whether you were going to get the truth out of them or not. And even if their moral reputation was bad enough, then one thing was unquestionable. They were considered to be ritually unclean. A rather ironic twist. They were ritually unclean because of their work with sheep. So not only were they physically unclean, but they were considered to be unclean from a spiritual standpoint. And because they worked round the clock, they were not able to attend the worship services or to offer the sacrifices, which would have purified them through the cleanliness. And so therefore, they were unclean, unable to participate in getting clean and despised all the more. And yet the irony of it, particularly for these shepherds, is that the sheep that they were watching just outside of town were quite likely owned by the temple, being raised for the temple sacrifice later on. So they were tending the very sheep that would once be sacrificed for everybody else in order that their sins would be forgiven, that they who were unclean would be made to be clean. And while they're the ones raising them, they receive no benefit of the work that they are doing, either tangibly or a spiritually. So we recognize that in that day when shepherds are out of the field, they're not the people that were greatly admired. And so it's particularly intriguing that these people who nobody wanted to associate with, that nobody would believe if they told a story in the first place, and that nobody thought worthy of receiving any aspect, any type of mercy, were the first ones who were told about and invited to come to see Mary's little lamb. Now, as we consider this, we understand that the shepherds represent the least and the lowest. The angel appearing first to the shepherds is a declaration and a reminder to us of God's grace. It screams out that there is no one that is so bad no one who is so far off that they have been disqualified from receiving God's grace. There is no one who is unacceptable if they are willing to receive grace. And while we understand the importance of what the shepherds represent, 
it strikes me it's also important for us to consider, maybe even more important than recognizing what they represent, but how we relate to these shepherds. If we're going to gain benefit from the message that was brought to them and that they took to other people. What I mean by that is that we all have a view of shepherds or at least in our culture, the people who would occupy the rung of the shepherds. Whoever it is that is considered the least and the worthless. Either in society or in our own eyes. And how do we identify them and how do we identify with them? It seems that there's really one of three ways that we each need to be asking ourselves in terms of our view, in terms of our identity, our relationship to these kinds of people. There are certainly some, and were some in that day, that hearing that God first came to the shepherds, despising them, resented any story or any implication that grace would be given to people who are so unworthy. There are other, and I suspect that probably most people, anybody who considers themselves to be a good person, would probably fall into a second category. Is recognizing the lowliness of these kinds of people, that they are in need of grace. And so we're really glad that God would extend grace to those people who are in such need. But there's a third way. And I believe the most significant way that we are to view the shepherds and the shepherd types of our day. It's rather than despising and being angry with God who would give grace to such people, and rather than just being happy that God would give grace to such a people, is to recognize that we are the shepherds. They represent not just the lowest, but they represent all of humanity in relationship to the holiness of God. Now, we may not like that, but if you look at the entirety of the story, who else is it that we are to identify with? You know, you're not Mary. If you didn't realize that, I'm sorry to break the news to you. You were not the deliverer of salvation to the world. You're certainly no angels, and some of you I know that for certain. Um, so who's left? And how we recognize ourselves and the fact that God came to these shepherds, these people that were of no account for themselves, unless we adopt the understanding that they represent not just the lowest, but all. We don't receive benefit because Jesus, as he matured and as he began to teach in his ministry, he said he didn't come for the people who were clean, but for the people who were unclean. He didn't come for the people who were healthy, but for those who were unhealthy. He didn't come for the righteous, but for those who were sinners. And the implication is, is unless we recognize our need, no matter how much we have, you might have been a rich shepherd or a poor shepherd, unless we recognize that in comparison to God's holiness, that we have nothing that he should desire us then we miss the whole gift that is being given to us in this Christmas season. What we tend to do is try to pay God back for that gift. Try that with your family members. They give you a gift of the heart and you pull out your wallet and try to give them cash back for that. It is a 
is. Yet God in the story preparing us for the gift that is for all of the people reminds us that he comes to those who are seeming least deserving. We can embrace with the Apostle Paul that whatever it is that we think that we may have that is admire, admirable by people in the world, it's all really as dung as compared to the surpassing greatness of being known by Christ Jesus. That we have no real righteousness of our own that is worth anything in God's economy. And yet, if we embrace the humbleness that is not impressed with ourselves, we become blessed as those who are poor in spirit. We receive all that God intends through the gift of his son, the Savior. We see all of that in the, in the shepherds. It's reinforced by looking at the Savior who the angel has announced. Because what we see in verse 11 is the angel's announcement, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Bible scholars tell us that nowhere else in all of the scriptures do we have that combination of titles all in one place. Savior, Christ, Lord. It is a unique combination that is declaring to us the specialness of this child that is being announced. It's a reminder to us that all of these titles are the fulfillments of prophecies that were given years, years in advance, and that this child is the fulfillment of all of them. And the number of prophecies and the likelihood of them being fulfilled is really quite amazing, quite astounding. Back in the 1950s, there was a, a professor of science and mathematics named Peter Stoner who began to kind of calculate the odds that one person would be able to fulfill the prophecies made of the promised Messiah. He wrote a book about it. In, in his book, he began building up to the reality. He said that there's 456 promises, prophecies about the Messiah that are found throughout the Old Testament. The odds of one person fulfilling eight of these 456 promises would be one in 10 to the 17th power. I would tell you the number, but I can't read that many zeros. But to illustrate the point and how incredible of the odds this would be, he said that number of zeros would be equivalent to being able to take silver dollars and filling every square inch of the state of Texas two feet deep. Then blindfolding a man and sending him on his way as he saw fit and then picking up on the first try one coin marked as being the object that he was seeking. Those were the odds of eight, fulfilling eight of 456, and Christ fulfills all 456 promises. Now, to be fair, there have been some pushback and some mathematicians who have said that his odds were not actually correct, and there were some factors that should have been considered. Frankly, I don't even care. 
if he is off by a little bit, you consider what are the odds that somebody would fulfill every single prophecy that was being made over the course of thousands of years and being fulfilled in the one child. And the angels, by coming and declaring, born to you this day is the promised Messiah, the Savior, Christ the Lord, is an indication that he is the one that God from heaven is coming and saying has fulfilled every one of those promises. He is the one that you have been waiting for. And so whether there's an, the odds of that being fulfilled are enough to fill the you know, silver dollars for the state of Texas two feet deep or not, I don't care if that's accurate. I don't care if it's just silver dollars in the state of Rhode Island. It really doesn't really matter to me. The odds are incredible, impossible, except God who was delivering and declaring through this announcement of the angels. We recognize that this child is the fulfillment of all of the prom, uh, prophe prophecies, and therefore he is the fulfillment of the promise that was made even to our first parents immediately after the fall. That even though we have plunged ourselves into misery, sin, death, and alienation and antagonism with God, his response, amazing as it is, immediately upon being offended in that way, was to say, but I will provide for you. A day will come. Genesis 3.15, the first declaration of the gospel Christ, who is the promised one, the angels are declaring he is the fulfillment of that. And so we see the very special nature of this child. But again, recognizing that we are the shepherds, we have nothing to offer. We also see something all the more important in these words, in the fact that he's a savior, that he is the Christ and he's the Lord. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach tells us that we need to recognize in these words, every one of them carries a common thread of language of rescue. Savior means nothing if you don't need to be saved. Christ is Messiah, deliverer, somebody who is going to take us out of our present bondage to our sin and to our brokenness. The Lord is the one who leads us and guides us and reigns and protects us. All of these words point to us to a significant aspect of God's gift to us for whatever the reason gets left out of many of our Christmas celebrations and even out of our own minds too often. We need to recognize the rescue nature of these titles. Because if you would ask many people, what is the real reason? What's the real meaning behind Christmas? No doubt we'd have any number of, of ideas. But the best of them would be about the need to be kind the promoters of, of peace, set aside our, our differences to forgive others so that we can be vessels of peace, all of which are absolutely tremendous and certainly inclusive in, in the message of the song and the purpose for which the Savior has come. But all of them are nothing but ornaments. If they are divorced, from the real message, which is that to people who were alienated from God and unable to help themselves, people who were far from God, God loved them, provided a gift that would save them from the circumstances in which they find themselves and a future which is at best futile. So Christ is the rescuer, deliverer. And in his rescuing and in that delivery, we are told of the benefits that come 
And yet we have this tendency of trying to extract the benefits from Christ apart from the person of Christ. As one old Puritan who I've been reading recently reminds us, you cannot have the benefits apart from the person. You may get things that look like them, but they are not coming from him. We in this Christmas season need to embrace not just the message and the results of the Christmas season, but rejoice and embrace the Savior who is the gift, who in his person has accomplished what we need, what was promised, and is at work within us still. That moves us on to the singers, the angels themselves. And we see their importance not just in the awesomeness that clearly and understandably leads to fear. Many of us have got this idea that if we would see an angel, well, that would solidify our faith. Perhaps it would. Although many who saw angels didn't seem to do much for them for the long haul. Many of us assume that it would be a nice experience. And yet anybody who's encountered an angel falls immediately because the radiance of God's glory that is upon them is so great that we can't look, we would be intimidated, we would be living a nightmare in their presence unless they give us comforting affirmation, which these angels did. Don't fear. Because I bring you the good news of great joy for all people. And these angels were excited. I mean, they were singing and delighted about this message they were bringing. It's a reminder of what we read later in the scriptures that even though angels have been aware of God's plan from however long, 1 Peter 1.12 tells us the angels love to look into the mystery of God's unfolding plan of redemption. And so these angels who were aware of something that was going to unfold, whether they were aware of a specific time of the delivery or not, they recognized that they had been sent to deliver the message of the plan that had been made long ago. They were excited about it then. Now the beginning of this plan is coming into fruition, and they are ecstatic and singing the praises of God because they are recognizing the glory of God in the very act of the redemption and the gift that he has given through the giving of the Son. And they are singing fully out, rejoicing, hearts overflowing. The angels are excited about God's plan of salvation, that mercy that he's extending to you and to me. And if the angels are excited, the messengers that God sends from heaven, it does tell us something about the importance of the message they bring, right? I mean, if the angels who've known about this for a long time, they're excited about this, it tells us this is not a ho-hum message. This is not just something that should be considered every once in a while as a nice thought, tuck it away, kind of like whatever the nicest uh, note that you received in your high school yearbook. You know, every once in a while, pull it back out. It'll bring you kind of warm fuzzies and nostalgia back to you. This is an important message that angels were excited, not just about how it was happening, but what it would do. They were shouting, singing, rejoicing in the good news. And yet there is another thing that the angels bring to us that's very important. Maybe today more than at other times. So the angels brought us good news, but good news doesn't mean that it's necessarily true news, right? I, I read somewhere that we have a problem of fake news uh, that is permeating our culture. 
Some people are quite upset about that. Apparently some people can't tell satire from reality and they are getting their news from The Onion, which is, which is fun, but maybe not the most reliable. As well as other news sites who don't know what in the world they're talking about, but that doesn't stop them from offering insights into world events. And while I'm making light of it, the reality is it is somewhat of a problem. A lot of it's on us that we can't tell the difference. But some of it is written in such a convincing way that it, it seems plausible. And as a culture, the way that we can make the distinction between the fake news and the real news is probably as simple as considering the source, right? If it's coming from a medium that is unreliable, yeah, maybe they're right every once in a while, but they're not to be trusted. And if the original source from whom the message that's being communicated is trustworthy and the medium that is bringing it to us is trustworthy, then there is a likelihood that the message itself is trustworthy. The fact that God from on high as the original source declared not only in promise, but then commissioned these angels to come out and to give the news and that his angels, holy, heavenly beings that God has commissioned, tells us that the original source and the means, method, medium that delivers it to us are both reliable. The veracity of the good news, the message that is given to us, is authenticated by the fact that it was brought to these shepherds through the angels. Which leads us to the very song itself. As I consider this week, I realize that if there is ever a song that is worthy for those who are hearing it to join and sing, it's this. Glory, God in the highest. Glory in excelsis Deo. For to you is born a Savior. you is very personal. Specific to the group of shepherds there. But we're told it's for all the people. Now, some will read that as if it's the, the promise to all of the nations. Technically speaking, at this point, it's probably focusing just the fulfillment of the promise. It was for all of the people of Israel. Although in the bigger picture, it really doesn't matter because Israel was raised up and promised, Abram was promised that he would be made into a great nation, which is Israel, that God would bless his nation, that his nation would be a blessing to the nations. The primary way that that would happen is that they would be the people through whom the promised Messiah would come. And it's also because the people of God, who are the recipients of God's grace, are also commissioned to be the dispensers of grace and mercy to all of the peoples who are around us. But in the angel's song, we see how the outworking of these promises takes place. Because to you a Savior has been born. We personalize that. We receive that. And we are reminded that the reconciliation that has taken place on earth, peace. And we tend to think of that in terms of international or interpersonal relationships. The foundational peace that has been declared here is that the war between God and man is now over, at least over as it pertains to those upon whom God's favor rests. Whose are the people that God's favor rests upon? 
anyone who believes, because as we're told later by the Apostle Paul, if we have faith, we receive it as a gift. It's not something we made, came up on our own. Not that we are wiser than anyone else, but God has gifted those to believe upon whom his favor has rest. So if you are one who believes this message, that is the evidence that God's favor has been poured upon you and he has reconciled you through this gift of the promised Messiah. And that's extended. The song reminds us it is a song of good news and great joy because this good news brings great joy. And if there's one application that I would leave with you with today, it's this. Perhaps one of the best measures of our understanding and our relationship to the gospel is by the measurement of joy that we have in our lives, and particularly in relationship to this message. That's inspirational in one sense. It's really religious in another. But it's very personal in this way. I don't know about you, but I confess that my, my spiritual vibrancy is often a lot like the router that we have for internet, wireless internet at our house. It's always plugged in. It's always on. But for whatever reason, it just decides from time to time it's just not going to actually connect me with that internet. And sometimes it becomes costly, as in the end of the month, the bill comes in and I've been using the, up all the data and then some that uh, the uh, Verizon is graciously gives to me at a fee. Um, my spiritual life is a lot like that too. It's not that I deny, it's not that I have periods where I say, I don't believe there's a God, and, and maybe you get disconnected in that way. It, it really, in one sense, doesn't matter because God is God. His grace is there in the person of Jesus Christ. The severity of our doubts is not the issue. How disconnected we get is somewhat irrelevant because when we're disconnected, we're not receiving the benefits that are promised in what we want to be plugged into. What I mean by that is, while I know all of the truth and I'm always plugged in, I don't necessarily experience the joy of that because there is a disconnect between what I believe, where I'm plugged in, and we, what's being delivered. I'm blocking that. It's not being delivered. And so, therefore, I need to constantly be reminded that this is good news, and this good news brings great joy. And when I consider what all of this song tells us, delivered to people who are unworthy, the promises of God fulfilled, for people that he brings into reconciliation and then through that reconciliation promises peace with him and then through others become mediators of peace and beneficiaries of peace. All of these promises in the person of Jesus Christ, when I stop and I kind of, that's the refresh button. I'm refreshed and I'm renewed, but only when I am reminded. And I only press the refresh button when I am aware that I'm disconnected. The fact that I know that my wireless does that to me means that I am regularly looking at my mediums at my tablet, my phone, to see whether I'm connected, because I know that it's I'm prone to be disconnected. The fact that I recognize my own heart disconnects in that same way means that I'm regularly looking as well. But when I don't look, I drain, and there is a cost. The promise of this song. Is that to you, 
There is renewal. There is refreshment because the Savior, the Redeemer, the Deliverer, the Lord has been given according to the promise. And we respond as the shepherds did in these last verses. I'm not going to elaborate. just going to bring attention to it. I think this is where sometimes our mistake in the evangelical church occurs. The first thing the shepherds did was go and see to appropriate this message for themselves. Only after they were filled with the veracity and the joy that comes in seeing and experiencing and receiving this good news did they go and tell others. Times in the evangelical church we focus so much on the importance of making sure people hear the PR campaign that God could have done had he chosen that we lose sight of our own need of being continually refreshed and renewed by experiencing this personally their example and the promise of the gospel is this. When we are saturated, connected, and renewed, and embracing this for ourselves, then there is power when we declare to the people around us, maybe to the nations. May this be a song in your heart, a reminder to be renewed. You will experience the good, the great, great joy of this good news and that through your life as well as your words others experience it as well. We invite you to stand as I pray. Father, as we come to your word, we thank you for it. Renew us in your grace this season as we consider the gift of the one you gave to deliver us in whom we have life and breath. 